Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today's extra episode is with the historian Richard Evans, and he's going to be talking to us about the history of epidemics and pandemics, and in particular, what we can learn about coronavirus from the story of cholera in the 19th century. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, the only magazine willing to ask the questions that keep you awake at night and answer them too, even if it takes 10,000 words. Is it okay to have a child in the age of climate crisis? Where next for the coronavirus? Was it a hermit crab that ate Amelia Earhart? You know where to go. Talking Politics listeners get to subscribe for a world-beating rate using the URL lrb.me slash talk. They'll even send you a free copy of Sinomania, writing about China, from the London Review of Books. Just go to lrb.me slash talk. Richard, maybe we should start with a little background to cholera in the 19th century. Just give us a sense of the scale of it and the frequency of it. How often and how widespread were cholera epidemics? Well, Massive epidemics are nothing new in human history. They're a normal part of human history, even if they only occur every now and then. So what we're going through now is really something that human society, various parts of the world, pretty well every part of the world, has gone through many times over the centuries. A new disease comes along from some other part of the world and hits a population that has not developed immunity through having been exposed to it before. So you can see this with the plague going far as back as the the late Roman Empire. You can see it with syphilis brought from the Americas by Christopher Columbus's sailors. You can see with many other diseases. And in the 19th century, the new disease was cholera. Uh, That is a disease of the digestive tract. So it's passed on through the mouth. It's not a disease that's passed on like coronavirus by droplet infection. It's basically carried through water and then also through human contact. If you somebody, uh, if you get it from one person to another through the uh, through the mouth, basically, uh, this is not experienced in Europe at all until the beginning of the 1830s. And like many of these epidemic diseases, it was spread by improved communications. So what you've got here is a disease that's endemic in northeast India and the British conquest of the British Raj or the, the East India Company, the conquest of North India opened up trade routes across to Persia and then through there to Russia. And that's the way that cholera came in the late the late 1820s. Uh, and it reached Central Europe in 1830, it reached Britain in 1832. So it's entirely new and it affects populations that are not exposed to it through impure water, through poor sanitation. Uh, it hit on a lot of the problems that were generated by industrialization, which is just beginning at the time, with overcrowded towns, dirty water, no proper sanitation, and so on. And the really terrifying thing about it is the death rate, the number of people who die from it compared to the number of people who get it is 50%. It's half, one in every two people, not like coronavirus, which is maybe two to 4%. So it's really, really deadly. And you can be dead 
uh, at that time, you could be dead from cholera in just a couple of days. It attacks the digestive tract. It basically kind of melts your innards by multiplying very rapidly and uh, causing everything to kind of liquefy uncontrollable vomiting and, and diarrhea until your bodily fluids, as it were, are so so depleted that you, you just die. So that's, that's cholera for you. And it was several times in 19th century Europe, um, the early 1830s, 1849, uh, 1854, and it's carried from west to east by the troops to the Crimean War from Britain and France to Russia, and then uh, 1866, 1871. You have a much clearer understanding now of how it was transmitted, the basic pathology of the disease. As you said, it was new. Yeah. Through through the 19th century, understanding grew. But initially, of course, people would have understood that human contact magnified the spread of the disease very rapidly. They would also have understood that it came from outside Europe. Did they understand much more than that? What was the level of knowledge beyond the fear of this disease? Well, um, they certainly knew it came from outside Europe because you can trace its progress across Europe from Russia through Germany and Austria down to France and then across to the UK. People's understanding of epidemic disease was very much framed by the, the plague, uh, which had really died out in Europe in the early 18th century. Um, but people just, uh, governments and administrations and officials just dusted off the old measures, opened up the old files and applied the same uh, administrative policies. In fact, in one of the German archives, I found a file uh, which was labelled the plague. And then sort of halfway through, there was a gap. And then they started off uh, talking about cholera with, a, with a, long, a long gap. So it's quarantine. Quarantine comes from 40 days, which the Venetians in the medieval period imposed people, people's isolations, ships not being allowed to unload and so on uh, for 40 days. Various kinds of attempts to halt its progress. Uh, the cordon sanitaire uh, is the main one. What you do there is you just get the army and you line up troops along the border and you stop anyone from coming through. And there's some evidence that actually worked in with cholera in Russia in the mid-1820s, but it certainly didn't work in the early 1830s. And therefore, administrations thought, this is no good. This is not how it's being transmitted at all. Uh, Corner sanitaire don't work. It's not the same. And the theory then emerged that it was uh, miasma, a kind of invisible uh, gas that rose from the ground. And there are all kinds of different versions of this including one where it came uh, from the ground under certain uh, atmos certain atmospheric conditions, certain kinds of weather and so on. Uh, and the advantage of that was you didn't have to mobilize the army and spend lots of money and quarantine. Uh, you either had to flee the site or you had to wear some kind of mask or something like that. Uh, so miasmatism, as it was called, was the dominant medical theory in the 1830s, 40s, 50s. Uh, John Snow, the British medic, British doctor, showed in uh, in one of the last British epidemics in London that it was carried through water, but nobody paid any attention to him. Uh, it wasn't really until very late, until the 1880s, that uh, medical opinion came round to the idea it was spread through water. And one thing that people noticed pretty quickly is that, again, we understand this differently, it struck particularly hard in poorer parts of town because of the concentration of population. And also, as you said, if you were wealthier, you could leave. And if you were poor, you couldn't. But as with all disease, there's a tendency to both to politicise and moralise. 
the facts. So how did people make sense of the fact that this was a disease that targeted the poor? Various different ways. I mean, I found some medical uh, maps that purport to show that the higher the ground you lived on in a town, the less likely you were to get it. But of course, that's a classic kind of statistical error because it was the richer people who lived on the higher ground and the poor tended to live in Hamburg, for example, where there was the last great epidemic in 1892 in Central Europe. Uh, they, the poor lived down by the harbour, the waterfront. Uh, the wealthy lived on the higher ground for, further in. But also there's a moralising. So the poor are careless, they're immoral, they're promiscuous, they uh, don't know how to control themselves. Um, and one of the ideas that you get in the mid-century about cholera is that if you are sensible, you uh, drink in moderation, you eat in moderation, you don't overexert yourself, then you're less likely to get it. The other thing that people would have been aware of was that the steps taken to try and limit the spread of the disease, and this has obvious parallels with today, whether a cordon sanitaire, a quarantine, keeping people in location was also a barrier to trade. So trade brings the disease and there is a trade-off. It's not quite zero sum, but almost, that if you want to control the spread of the disease, you have to limit trade. And that's bad news for people who are traders. So how did the politics, particularly in the first half of the 19th century, how did the politics of this play out as, as states, governments, officials tried to control free movement of people and goods? What level of resistance was there? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it is spread through through trade. Uh, and of course, it's accelerated by the coming of the railways in the 19th century. So in Hamburg in 1892, about 10,000 people died within the space of roughly six weeks um, because it got into the central water supply. So you had a nice lot of bacilli uh, delivered to every house that had a connection with the with the central water supply. It wasn't filtered. Um, people were, of course, aware of, of how fast it was spreading, but they didn't really know why. One factor that was really quite neglected was war, warfare and revolution. So uh, when you get armies charging across Europe, in, living in unsanitary conditions, uh, you, they very often take cholera. It's, it's no coincidence that um, it's the uh, Polish uh, uprising in the early 1830s that gets the Russian armies to spread cholera to the West, or the uh, repression of the 1848-49 revolutions, or the Crimean War, as I mentioned, or Bismarck's Wars of German Unification in 1866 and 71. They all spread cholera. But that's exceptional circumstances. As you say, rightly, it's, it is trade. And if you look at, in at, uh, more closely at Hamburg, which is in the early 1890s, the fourth largest seaport in the world, and it's got a large population, second biggest city in Germany, and it's run by merchants. The merchants basically get relatives who are lawyers to form the city government, and uh, they were terrified of quarantines. So they actually only employed doctors who believed in this miasmatist theory of the transmission of cholera, i.e. they didn't believe it could be spread in water or by people or by movements of people and goods, uh, because the worry was that the income of the city depended almost entirely on, on overseas trade and associated industries. So they basically deliberately suppressed the, um, the, the news of the arrival of cholera in 
the late summer of 1892. And that's a common theme across epidemics. You find it in accounts of all kinds of epidemics going right through history. The first reaction of authorities is to worry about the economic consequences that you'll get through the suppression of trade, uh, whether it's consequent unemployment, business failures, and so on. So that's the initial reaction. It's always say, oh, no, 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 this can't be right. It can't be right. We'll come back in a bit to now, because I think people listening to this will be very struck by the parallels as well as the differences. So this cholera is a disease which discriminates between classes in a way. If you are low to the ground, therefore near water, also in a high density area, you are much more likely to be a victim of this disease. If you are a merchant or a trader, you think that quarantine is a danger to your way of life and your line of business. Those are conditions that breed not just political anger, but conspiracy theories, ideas that this is being deliberately targeted at the poor. This is a form of social cleansing and so on. You know, the 19th century, among many other things, is a great age of that kind of conspiracy theorizing and that kind of politics. Cholera presumably accelerates it. Yes, um, you get riots which occur quite frequently, and they're usually provoked, popular riots, by a government and administration imposing quarantine, shutting up victims and their families in their houses, uh, denying uh, proper traditional burial rites to people who've perished from an epidemic. All kinds of things like this provoke a reaction, particularly where in Naples, for example, in 1884, where there's a, a quite a bad epidemic, um, the government is notoriously corrupt and mixed in with uh, criminal organisations and so on, and much distrusted by the population. So you get riots, you get riots in uh, Britain in the early 1830s because that's the time when just before then, Burke and Hare, the notorious murderers, have been convicted of killing people in Edinburgh to supply the bodies to the anatomy schools um, after the Anatomy Act had been, been passed. Cholera is, is attributed to this idea of killing off people to supply the anatomy schools. There's no evidence for that at all, I should I should add. But what you have in the 19th century, interestingly, is uh, what's been called by historians the medicalization of society. Gradually, as the medical profession gets organized, becomes more effective, people start trusting it. And in the 1892 epidemic in Hamburg and the 1911 epidemic in, in Naples, uh, you do get the population are not rioting, they're accepting what the authorities are saying. In Naples in 1911, very Cleverly, the local authority has uh, sort of sanitary cleanup squads going around and implementing regulations made up of uh, uh, men from the local district. So they're known and trusted by the population. Uh, in Hamburg, the social democratic movement, which is very, very popular amongst the working class, uh, believes very strongly in science and, and scientific medicine. And uh, they, again, they educate people. So there's, there's no real disturbances. It is striking in reading your accounts of this in the early part of the story in the 19th century where state capacity was much more limited and doctors such as they were were on the front line not just of treating the disease but actually trying to do the forms of social control that would limit the spread of the disease. They were the people who were the targets of popular anger. I mean part of that medicalization story is doctors go from being on the front line of this politically to being relatively speaking 
more neutral figures of authority. Is that fair? That's right, absolutely. Uh, it also reflects the level of education among the poorer classes of people. So it's not terribly good in Naples in 1884. It's much better in 1911. In 1892, in Russia, the town of Saratov on the Volga, uh, anyone seen wearing a white coat was immediately stoned and attacked. Uh, and quite a few doctors were, were killed. They're accused of trying to get rid of the poor, to reduce the burden of the poor on the state and so on. Um, in Saratov, uh, the state puts up notices telling people what to do, but the level of literacy among the poor is not very high, and so they're not really understood. And as you get better education, science gets more effective, uh, then people start believing uh, the, what the doctors are saying and they're not attacking them anymore. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. A perennial feature of all epidemics and pandemics, particularly when they spread internationally and globally, some of them, is xenophobia. So any any situation in which there is a feeling that outsiders have brought death and destruction and that the correct response is to limit the movement of people inevitably fuels suspicion of foreigners. In the 19th century, again, we see this everywhere, right? Uh, well, no, maybe not. Well, That's well, a leading question. Not. Yes, yeah, I know. Yes. <laughs> well, actually, surprisingly, no. So if you look at the Hamburg epidemic of 1892 again, it is clearly brought to Hamburg by migrants, by emigrants leaving Russia and on their way to a new life in the new world, in the United States, overwhelmingly. Tens, scores of thousands of them. This is a very large uh, migration. It's done by railway. They arrive in the city and they're housed in very unsanitary barracks, which discharge their uh, uh, human waste into the river. River's very low, weather's very hot, it's dry. It's swept up stream and it goes into the water inlet uh, and uh, drinking water contains a bacillus and, and that's delivered to everyone in the city who has a water supply connection, as I said. Um, and if you look at the uh, breakdown of uh, people on the migrant ships going across from Hamburg to the United States uh, before, just before and up to the beginning of the epidemic when it stopped, uh, you find 75% of these people are Jewish because they're fleeing uh, pogroms, persecution, violence in Russia in 1890-92. But you don't find any anti-Semitism very much uh, on a popular level in, in Hamburg. Uh, and that, again, I think is because the vast majority of the population who are dot workers, industrial workers, uh, they belong to the Social Democratic Party, which is very much opposed to anti-Semitism. In fact, it's quite philo-Semitic. Um, uh, so that's sort of quite surprising. There's a small number of kind of professional political anti-Semites in the city, 
but they direct their fire against the city government. And they they uh, accuse the city government of being of being Jewish, uh, which it wasn't. So um, that's quite that's quite surprising. I think it's uh, mostly anger is turned against local authorities and not so much against foreigners. But in earlier epidemics, so the irony in a way in that case there were grounds, although it would be politically toxic. There were grounds for blaming people who brought it in. In earlier epidemics. Wasn't it more common to fall back on familiar stereotypes and tropes, including anti-Semitism? Uh, well, if you look, yeah, if you look at the whole history of, of epidemics, that's certainly the case. You can trace the spread of syphilis across Europe from 1492 into the 1500s by what the disease was called. It, it's called the Spanish disease in Italy. It's called the Italian disease in France. It's called the French disease in Germany, and so on. Um, in the Black Death, the bubonic plague in 1349, you have the rumour that the Jews, the religious Jews, are poisoning the wells and there are mass murders of Jews, pogroms, lots of violence going all the way along the Rhineland. So that's a kind of conspiracy theory mixed in with a, a prejudice against a, a different religion, adherence of a different religion. So you certainly find examples of it earlier on. But I think by the 19th century, it's much less much less common. One feature of cholera, and this is something that historians have argued about, is that the earlier two epidemics that you mentioned, so the early 1830s, the late 1840s, also coincide with political upheaval in Europe. And indeed, the the story of democracy and the democratisation of Europe passes through also periods, significant periods of change. And in the earlier cases, they do coincide with these epidemics. It's at least possible to argue, though I think it's also possible to argue the other way, and you're going to tell us, that there is a connection here, that the kind of, and people will be interested in this in relation to what we're going through now, the kinds of changes that are forced on societies and on governments, and the kinds of tensions that are brought to the surface under conditions of widespread disease, do trigger the possibility of social and political change. In the case of cholera, is that plausible? Does it stack up? Or is it just more like chance? Um, well, kind of, yes and no, in a way. So certainly in Britain, uh, you have widespread uh, criticism of the system of government for allowing a cholera to spread. You get health boards are set up in particular, uh, and you get a lot of attention paid to unhealthy conditions in the new industrial towns. But a lot of that impetus for reform is quite short-lived, and it, it uh, dies away until the next epidemic comes along. Uh, interestingly, again, in Hamburg in 1892, because it's the only place in Central Europe and pretty much in, in, in Western Europe as well that suffers this major cholera epidemic, it's singled out. It's not something that happens everywhere. So people are saying, what's wrong with Hamburg? Why is it happening in Hamburg? That means that the city government is very, very vulnerable to uh, attempts at massive social political reform uh, and it has a very peculiar system it's run by merchants as i say on a very laissez-faire amateurish kind of system it's an independent or more autonomous state within the german empire and it's quite anti-prussian prussians seen as authoritarian the very idea of a professional bureaucracy for example, is anathema in Hamburg. The merchants do it themselves and they're not paid for it either. So one effect of the epidemic 
uh, is that the imperial government in Berlin sends in a kind of medical hit squad under Robert Koch, the uh, the Louis Pasteur of Germany, the man who's discovered the causes of cholera uh, in 1884. And he just imposes uh, a lockdown. He imposes free distribution of properly purified water. You see people queuing up on the, on the main streets and the main squares. He isolates the victims. There's a quarantine, so trade stops. After that, the government of Hamburg is basically forced to introduce a Prussian style of administration with paid professional hire civil servants. It's forced to reorganize the way it runs things. It's forced to intervene in society with a new health administration system, new hygienic regulations, properly filtered water supply, proper disposal of waste, all of these things intervening society in a vastly greater degree than had happened before. And interestingly, uh, that's because Hamburg is up to that point regarded as English. Because uh, Britain controlled a lot of the world's, world's trade, uh, the merchants, elites of, of, of Hamburg were very anglicized. They gave their children names like Percy and George. Um, they had English nannies. They sent their younger sons to do a bit of time in the merchant houses in, in London. Uh, and the idea of not interfering in society was a sort of very English one. And you can see a kind of um, Germanization or Prussianization of the city after that. And of course, that raises issues about the intervention of state and society, which we are facing today with the current unprecedented lockdown as well. It's possible to look at the way in which this country now started reacting to the coronavirus as a kind of very English way, a reluctance to involve the state heavily in uh, locking down and combating the, the epidemic in making it all initially voluntary rather than compulsory. And there's something very English about that in terms of political culture and tradition. Quite different from, you know, quite different from Germany and uh, particularly France, of course, where you've, there's a much more dirigiste kind of state. But we, we were also talking the other day on this podcast with someone giving us the view from Italy and saying that the Italians also look at us, particularly the British, and single us out as having a laissez-faire and also, to use a kind of 19th century idea, that we're a nation of merchants and shopkeepers. So, of course, we prioritise keeping trade moving over shutting things down. Those perceptions, I don't know if they're caricatures or not, but those national tropes still exist. It's remarkable. That's true. Yes, yes. So I'm going to ask you a few more possible parallels with now, and you can say what you like. You can <laughs> refuse <laughs> okay. to answer as a historian, or you can take me up on the challenge. So one striking disanalogy between cholera, the one we've particularly been talking about, and coronavirus. So coronavirus also very much discriminates within the population. It attacks the old. Mm. Um, and it and it does exacerbate what were pre-existing, what are pre-existing tensions in our democracy. So we've seen well before this virus struck, the extent to which generational divides, arguments about classic democratic arguments about the distribution of welfare and and of wealth cut across generational lines. Cholera, it was class. Do you think that there are any parallels or do you think that that's actually one of the big differences here? I mean, it's also true cholera struck the poor and the poor were in the majority in the cities where it happened. And we are now living in rapidly aging societies. So we've got a group of people, the old, the elderly, who are a much larger proportion of the population than they would have been in the 19th century, but are also much more vulnerable to this disease. Can you see ways in which these two things might exaggerate these 
these divides? Uh, yeah, I think there are there are major differences. So the uh, impact of cholera on society was differential because of essentially wealth. So, in fact, in 1992, on the centenary of the Hamburg epidemic, I met the last known survivor, Frau Brandt, who is aged 106, and we had a very interesting talk. And she was the daughter of a very wealthy merchant, and she said oh, the servants in the house, once they had got instructions from Koch, uh, they, were, they were constantly boiling the water to purify the water and, uh, and uh, the, uh, get rid of the bacillus. They had their own to- uh, toilets, their own bathrooms, which the poor people did not, did not do. So they were uh, isolated, they were insulated from the impact of the bacillus because they had resources to, to cope with it. Um, and you can do a statistical correlation, which I did across the different 20 different districts in Hamburg and find the, the higher proportion of houses with own bathroom, the lower the proportion, the lower the impact of the disease and so on. Now, I, I think it's rather different. The vulnerability of the old is not really in terms of social divisions. It's simply a medical vulnerability. If you're over the age of 17, you're less resistant to disease. If you uh, have an underlying health condition uh, of one kind or another, you are you are less resistant to it. To it. And, and those, by and large, I would say, are not very heavily products of uh, of social differences in, in, in wealth and, and resources. But one of the ways in which it could be parallel is it does lend itself to the kinds of suspicion that was there in the 19th century and is there today, which is there's a class of people who can be caricatured as a burden on the state and this disease targets those people and therefore where there seem to be regimes that are more reluctant to act and you've seen it in the UK case the extreme version of the conspiracy theories is that the government is essentially using this as an opportunity for a form of social cleansing the people who are the burden on the treasury are the people who are going to die to put it bluntly and when I was reading some of your accounts of cholera I heard faint echoes of the the current arguments, it was more extreme in the 19th century, but the fear of the victims that they are being left to suffer the effects of this disease because they are not economically productive. Yes, I think that's certainly certainly the case um, uh, in terms of, uh, well, to some extent it's the case, um, because in the 19th century, because the poor are not necessarily burdens on society. They're mostly, they're mostly working. They're working in poorly paid, cheap uh, manual jobs. They're living under very poor conditions, which favour the spread of the disease. But uh, there are poor law systems. There is a poor relief system in, in, in operation that affects the very lowest class of society. Uh, very often, actually, the poor in the 19th century were the old. They were people who were too old to... Uh, to work when manual labor is a very important part of uh, of the economy, far more important than it is now. But you get the riots uh, and accusations of that the government or medical men are trying to dispose of the the unwanted. Um, I think they're not they're not the poorest class of society who are who are rioting. They're they're slightly cut above that. Nevertheless, I mean this idea of the government, this conspiracy theory of governments trying to dispose of people who they don't they don't want. I think you can see a certain amount of parallel there. You talked about the impact in Hamburg. It was effectively transformational in the extent to which it drove far greater intervention, control and investment on the part of the local authorities. So we're now living through an epidemic which 
in order to be controlled. And we do have examples of states that have successfully controlled it, South Korea, Taiwan. We're seeing it in Israel. I don't think people have spoken enough about that. And of course, famously in China. And it is using forms of social control that draw on new technology, forms of tracing and tracking and so on. From what you've said, I sense there are two ways you can tell the 19th century story. The earlier version where you you got quite significant changes, but they tended to fall away after the epidemic was dealt with, waiting for the next epidemic to kick back in. And then towards the end of the century, something more like structural change, where actually the effect of the epidemic was to change the way in which local and then national governments went about their business. If you look at the current one, which which do you have any sense of which way we're going? I mean, is it likely to be closer to the end of the 19th century that we're actually going to emerge into societies where we just have to accept radically more invasive forms of surveillance and control? I think the pressure in, in most countries, if you bracket out China, uh, the pressure for greater state control uh, is going to uh, is going to fade away. Uh, assuming we get over this this epidemic, uh, then I think there'll be a huge demand to return to more democratic forms. You've seen this in the the debates over the uh, government's current measures, which the, the political world is very insistent uh, should have a sunset clause, as they call it, so only valid for six months, and then you can see what's happening then and start to dismantle them. Um, but what I will say is that one of the main reasons for really serious epidemics is a breakdown of of the state completely you can see this in haiti in the uh, in the early 2010s you've got a very poor society with a barely functioning state hit by a hurricane uh, hit by earthquake and then hit by cholera and that's the most recent example of a massive cholera epidemic including uh, riots and attacks on Nepalese United Nations troops who'd been brought in to try and establish some kind of order where ordinary people blamed them for bringing the cholera. Quite correctly, as it turned out, the strain of cholera in Haiti was the same strain as as it was in Nepal, uh, and also blamed them for being too much in cahoots with what there was of the Haiti government. So it's a breakdown of a state. You can see that uh, everywhere where a major epidemic really occurs and, and gets hold of plenty of other examples. The disorganization of the Peruvian state a bit a bit earlier with the Shining Path guerrillas, for example, driving refugees down to the, the seashore where they lived in very insanitary conditions. Wars, civil strife, all of that kind of thing encourages disease because the state can't impose preventive measures and can't actually then deal with the epidemic when it happens. Another major difference, I think, now, however, is that medicine is much better at uh, developing ways of limiting epidemics and ways of curing and preventing disease. So the 19th century is quite good at discovering why diseases happen, but wasn't very good at actually curing them uh, or developing any kind of prophylactic. So there's uh, of a medical kind. And we're confidently expecting... A, uh, a vaccine within months, within a year, maybe. Uh, it took decades to find uh, preventive measures of a medical kind that would uh, stop uh, diseases, uh, very, very common diseases like tuberculosis, for example. I, my uncle died of tuberculosis, uh, and and that's now not a not a major threat where the state can get uh, get vaccines to people. 
one last one it comes out of what you just said so we're absolutely not seeing the kind of disease and therefore the kind of reaction to that disease in which medical professionals are the target of popular anger quite the reverse the the medical profession and also then just everyone who works in care they are the heroes of this story and yet we haven't talked about the united states particularly but in some of the rhetoric coming out of the trump administration some of the things that you're hearing governors and other politicians in the south say I would noticed again faint echoes of the 19th century cholera story. So Donald Trump has recently said, if you left all this up to doctors, they would shut down everything and the economy would die and many more people by implication would die. That if you put these decisions in the hands of medical professionals, the, the 21st century version of the argument is they have such a different risk profile than the ones that politicians have to use that you, are, you, you run risks the other way. Now, we haven't, I don't think we've seen any of that in the UK yet, but it is noticeable in the United States, some of those 19th century arguments about the, the doctors versus the traders. Does that ring any bell for you or do you think it's, am I stretching again? No, that's right. I mean, I think, you know, Donald Trump is up for re-election in a few months' time. He's banked everything on there being a booming economy. This is going to wreak havoc with the economy. And so he's at the moment, I think, trying to decide whether it's uh, in his interest, and he always thinks of himself first, I'm afraid, to dismantle uh, precautions taken to uh, limit the spread of the virus and let it run rampant across the country. And if you want me to come out with a conspiracy theory, David, as oh, I'm sure you do, <laughs> it's because the uh, coronavirus it's mainly hitting the big cities, which are Democratic voters, and not hitting the countryside nearly so much. And the Midwest, that's where Trump supporters are. Yeah. <laughs> although, <laughs> that's what I've although, seen. <laughs> although, as, as I think you've said to me in the past, and where is the conspiracy? <laughs> it seems in to me the that's, White House. That in seems to be just an explanation <laughs> of that seems to be like politics. <laughs> it's in the White House. Okay. Yeah, that's what I've seen anyway. We will tweet links at tppodcast underscore to Richard's writing on this subject, his classic book about the cholera epidemic in Hamburg, and also an article in which he tells the story of cholera through the 19th century. We have got another extra episode coming up with Tara Westover. We're going to be replaying our interview with her about her book, Educated, and she's going to be telling us how she feels now about kids not going to school. My name is David Runciman and we've been talking politics. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.